0: Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here. And thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Our uh... We have these two big theological ideas for this series. Um, The first one is being made in the image of God. That is to say, every human being is made in the image of God. doesn't matter how you look at yourself, when you look in the mirror, when God looks at you, he sees the image of himself. He sees his daughter, he sees his son made in his image. The other theological idea is that our identities are in Christ. Which means as we go through life, there's a million different competing ideas threatening for our attention. Our idea, our central idea for who we are, what defines us, what makes us us, is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. He has rescued us and called us his own. And so our identity is not founded on whatever the social construct of the day is, but on Christ alone. Amen? So these are these two major topics that we hold together as we approach every single uh, one of these sermons. So our teaching text tonight is from Psalm 139. And apologies for the croaky voice. There's not much I'm going to be able to do about it. I've been popping butter menthol and Vicks like they're going out of fashion, which they might be if I continue to eat them at this rate. Psalm 139, we're st- I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. We'll start at verse 1. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, Darfur in Western Sudan. Darfur is the site of the worst genocide in modern history, certainly in the last 50 years. That's what historians count as modern history for this case. Over the last 20 years in the region of Darfur, a maximum estimated 400,000 people have died. It is, it is a catastrophe, Uh, officially the war ended in 2020, but the conflict continues to roll on. Civilian casualties continue. Militia continue to fight despite the peace. Now, most of that 400,000 number admittedly are disease related. That's an estimated 80%, but it's included in terms of how we understand that number. Day after day, we see people continue to die to this day in this conflict. It is horrific and it echoes across the waves to where we are here. We've had waves of Sudanese and South Sudanese refugees here in Australia in the last 20 years, including some who are part of our sister congregation at Enfield. I encourage you to talk more to them about this conflict that deserves a lot of attention. This conflict that, again, including disease, including starvation, 400,000 people have given their lives in 20 years. In that same period in Australia... The minimum, and this is rounding right down, like right to the the bowl, the minimum estimated amount of abortions in Australia is 1.26 million. That's a minimum. The ratio in Australia of live births to abortions is roughly five to one. That means in this country for every five babies who are born, one is intentionally killed. In South Australia alone, 4,415 babies were aborted in 2018. That's the most recent year we have sort of a complete data set for. So if you hear me referring to 2018, that's why. It, it wasn't any year in particular. That's just the most recent we have good data. Statistically, on average, one in every three to four Australian women will have an abortion during their lifetime. 34% of those will have more than one abortion. Now, I have never had an abortion, clearly. Clearly or have been involved in one. I am not a woman. For some people, that would give me no right to speak on this topic. But I believe that when people are told they cannot speak, that is when injustice begins to reign. That doesn't mean I have more right to speak. I certainly don't. But when we say to one person, you can speak, and to another, you can't, that's when we begin to fall prey to injustice. When people are silenced, we become oppressive and imbalanced as a culture. Now, believe me, A 41-year-old white male is the least silenced group of people in the world. I am am deeply aware. (laughs) So let me tell you, given I don't have experience with abortion, what I do have experience with. I have three beautiful children who I have not only raised as a father, but I've walked with my wife through her pregnancies. I've walked and wept with my wife through two miscarriages. I've watched dear friends courageously choose to have babies as single mums and wrestle with that but continue with it. I've desperately prayed and fasted with people who struggle to have children. I've hugged and cried with terrified teenagers who have had unprotected sex and feared pregnancy and didn't know what tomorrow would bring. When you're a pastor, you just become involved with issues of life and death a little more than the average person. And what is more life and death than abortion? So tonight, I want to speak to the biblical vision about abortion and human life and to what we as the church can do to play our part. So let me look at the theological aspect first. Now, say theological, and I want that to be really understood because one of the things that frustrates me most in a topic like this and in any sensitive topic is when a Christian, again, not a non-Christian, a Christian says to me, well, that's your opinion, but this is my opinion. It's like, with all due respect, I'm not here to give my opinion. I'm here to, as best as I can, represent what God is saying through his word. Now, you're allowed to disagree with that, but understand that this is where the argument is coming from, not from what I have felt or believed as I've grown up. Now, I have had to put that to death pretty carefully in this sermon in particular, and I'll get into that a bit more later on. But forget your opinion. My opinion and your opinion, they're not as important as we think they are, right? Experiences are very important. I'm going to get to that later. Stories, deeply important. Our opinions are not as important as we think they are. The everlasting word of God is something we can hold on to. So what is God trying to say about this? Because where can we find answers that lead to life and hope, not just today, but for all eternity? So please don't don't come thinking this is a war of opinions. It is not. This is about asking, can we uncover, understand, and live out God's wisdom for our lives? Let's hear the words of Jesus. God is a God of the living and not the dead. Matthew 22, 32. God values human life. God values your life. I'm not going to spend any more time convincing you that God values life. I'm going to do that a little bit next week. But I will just remind you that one of the 10 commandments is, you shall not murder. And it also seems to be something pretty deeply ingrained in every culture. We seem instinctively to stand against that. So instead of that, let's look at what the Bible says about children. I'm, I'm sure... If you want to ask more questions about why murder is bad, we can do that. But let's look at what the Bible says about children. Because children in the vision of God's kingdom are treasures. They're not burdens, they're not difficulties, they're not uncertainties, they are treasures. In Genesis, the command to be fruitful and multiply is central to God's vision for Adam and Eve for the world. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5, says this Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Sometimes I say that to my boys. I'm like, you're my arrows. You're my arrows in my quiver, aren't you boys? I'm like, yeah, we're arrows, dad. It's like, good. Part of the history of the Israelite nation is that God gave them the land of Canaan as their land, commanding them to cast out the false gods. Now, one of the reasons that God was quite happy to say, this land can be yours, is because the people of Canaan were constantly worshipping gods that went against children. Baal and Asherah were some of the native gods. They were gods of fertility, aka sex idols. And Molech, the Ammonite god, who who demanded sacrifices of children in fire. So when the Israelites turned away from God at any point to worship these false idols, God's hand of blessing was removed from them. So the moral of the story is it's always foolish to worship sex for a minute rather than God for a lifetime. But for the ancient Israelites, having children was a clear sign of the blessing of God. Look at Abraham and Sarah desperately praying for Isaac, for Hannah, praying in the temple for Samuel. Look at Elizabeth and Zechariah praying earnestly for John the Baptist, And of course, Jesus blesses children. Matthew 19, verses 13 to 14, then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, leave the little children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. These, he calls out children, said they are a gift from God. The Bible is very clear. But God also states through the Bible that he has known his plans for them, since before they were born. Psalm 139, as we've already heard, describes that it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You nipped me together in my mother's womb. Verse 16 You saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. In Jeremiah, we hear the prophet say, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Isaiah similarly says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. While Paul states in Galatians 1 verse 15, But when God, who from my mother's womb, set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. Verse after verse after verse saying God knew us before we knew ourselves. In Luke chapter one, of course, John the Baptist is in his mother's womb and he leaps for joy in the womb as his pregnant mother comes to meet Mary, pregnant with Jesus, and he comes near to his savior and the baby leaps for joy for the presence of Christ. There's this unusual word that sometimes gets used here, not in like normal conversation between humans, but when you're talking in broader theology and that is the word ensouled. Everybody say ensouled. The Christian question always used to be, when does a human have a soul? That's, that's when, when are we in soul? Now, that's kind of impossible to know, right? But what we can see is that the Bible is clear about God forming children in the womb. So we have to infer from this almost excessive amount of discussion about the womb. I mean, I bet you didn't expect this many verses about God knowing us in the womb. We have to infer that these tiny creatures have a soul. And the Bible's pro-womb stance also matches modern science. Biologists have a consensus on when human life begins. It is at conception. So more than 96% of international biologists, as we discussed two weeks ago, I am not an international biologist, but I will research them. They agree with this statement. Now, that's not a religious statement at all. That is a scientific statement, right? I'm not, this is not me. This is a scientific statement. Conception is the moment when the sperm fertilizes an egg. Now, the word fertilization, if you use that, that refers to the same thing. If somebody is going to become pregnant, it happens within a week of having sex. That's for both fertilization of the egg and its implantation into the uterus. After that, you're pregnant. So any termination after conception is, according to scientific consensus, the death of a human life. I I wanted to get through that quite quickly because... What you might not know is that pro-abortion campaigners don't really make that argument anymore. That's not a discussion point they use. Once upon a time, the language used to be around, it's just a clump of cells. That's not really what gets said anymore because biology has caught up and there's just an understanding that that is simply untrue biologically. So pro-abortion activists, to their credit, are much more honest about that now. For example, the British pro-abortion journalist Antonia Senior said this, My daughter was formed at conception. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. So again, that's a pro-choice person speaking about her own opinions. Now you may wonder about contraception and its role in the Christian story. If life begins at contraception, no, it doesn't. If life begins at conception, if that's the worst slip up I do today, I'm okay with it. If life begins at conception, then in theory, contraception, that is against conception, should be or could be permissible. It's before life begins. Similar, but different obviously, to menstruation. Now Catholics will have a different opinion on this. And if you're in the room with a Catholic background, I hear you and actually, I actually have a great deal of respect for that opinion. But because we are talking about the potential for human life, not the existence of human life, I would argue that contraception is acceptable and even wise, just in case you were wondering. However, contraception ain't perfect. Anytime you have sex, you run the risk of pregnancy. You place yourself in God's hands, which is why you should place yourself in God's covenant. (laughs) Marriage is the only place where sex is able to flourish properly. Okay, I'm I'm just going to go for it here. I feel like a broken record sometimes. (laughs) I've talked about this so often. But as soon as sex gets taken out of marriage, it's like trying to carry soup in your hands. Like, I I guess maybe you could do it if you're really, really lucky, but it's probably going to go terribly wrong. It's a bad idea. The problem is we think we know better than God. Man, nothing's better than me trying to be firm on this while sounding prepubescent at the same time. Am I right? (laughs) Right? Right? We tell ourselves that sex is fine as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But sex outside of marriage hurts so many people, including ourselves. Inside a marriage founded on God. With a husband and wife who are trying to imitate Christ and lay down their lives for each other, we find a space for sex to be the bountiful gift God intended. To be fun, patient, to be potentially to give us children. That's what safe sex is. It is a wedding ring in a Christ-like marriage. It's not perfect, but we've got to stop assuming that if we see something that isn't perfect, then we should throw the whole thing out and run in the other direction. That's an insane way to face decisions, to go, oh, 99% of this is pretty good, but I saw 1% that was a mistake, so out with that. Let's just go and do whatever we want. That's a really bad idea. You wouldn't do that in any other form of life. If you are here and you struggle not to have sex with your partner, please just know, like, I'll marry you guys. Let's just talk about it. Let's do it. Right? I need a month's notice to sign some paperwork. Let's get you married or let's get you broken up. What do you want? Like, uh, like, like it, read it and then go and look at how sex affects the world when it's not used wisely. I will marry you within six weeks. Like, come and talk to me. I don't have a problem with it. But don't dishonor God and each other. Or risk the damage. Don't point to people. You absolute rap bags. The point is, we don't want to dishonor God. And we don't want to risk the damage that sex can bring outside of marriage. So look into your own heart. Don't make me name the people I can see in the congregation pointing at each other. Look at your own heart and your own relationship. Honor God and and you will actually live a life that is wiser, safer, smarter. All right. Sometimes people are like, oh, the church talks too much about sex. Honestly, we do not talk enough about it. Anyway, back to abortion. (laughs) The Bible and modern science are both very clear. Children are a gift from God. The murder of a human being is unquestionably wrong. An abortion is definitely killing a human being. So why do we persist in having 65,000 Australian abortions a year? Why? Well, it's about ideology. And we talked a little bit that our framework for this series, we're looking at the ideologies of our culture. What are our opinions? What drives the narrative? What's the theology? What does God say? And then what's the pastoral response? How do we care for people? Well, the ideology in the abortion conversation drives everything. Are you pro-choice or are you pro-life? Now, I'm not sure these words actually say what they mean, right? To, to me, it's more accurate to talk about pro-abortion and anti-abortion because pro-choice is, is a false dichotomy. I'll get to that later. Pro-life is a phrase that's a bit open to interpretation and interrogation given that we're, when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about one aspect of life. So I use the language of pro-abortion and anti-abortion because it's more honest. That's what we're really talking about. The casual language that is used by, like my cards are on the table here, right, of how I'm interpreting scripture. The casual language used by pro-abortion activists is is pretty alarming, I think. On one pro-abortion podcast I listened to this week because I do my research, the guest who had two abortions before she was 25 said that her mum had told her with her first abortion, oh, it's not a big deal, it happens, just make an appointment. Now, while I can appreciate that the mother is probably trying to do her best to respond calmly to to a highly emotional situation, To say it's just an appointment. A human life. An appointment. For a second abortion, she was actually with the person who would be her future husband in her mid-twenties. But she said, oh, it's not a great time. Now, if we're going to be honest, church, statistically, the major reasons for abortion are a form of inconvenience. We are going to look at all the reasons. But the major reason is a form of inconvenience. So let's look at the law briefly now. I'm also not a lawyer. Jimmy, can you confirm? Yes. I'm not a lo- lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. The lawyers in the room can confirm I'm not a lawyer. In Australia, the law around abortion is, is pretty open and shut at this point. Abortion is legal with only one healthcare professional approving it up until a minimum of 16 weeks in every state and territory. In South Australia, it's legal up to 22 weeks and six days with just one doctor giving you the, the tick. After that, it requires a second doctor's approval who can approve abortions up to full term. That's the law in Australia. So I'm I'm not really here to argue about the law. That's not my expertise. Uh, If you want to know more about the devastating effects of abortion law, I would recommend you look at the work of Dr. Joanna Howe, who is a local professor of law at the University of Adelaide, one of the foremost anti-abortion activists in Australia. I think she would want me to point out that the law now protects those who want abortions, which on one level is actually quite good. I'm not going to get down that path tonight. But a large number of babies who are aborted are actually born alive. And if they are aborted but born alive, they do not have human rights in Australia. In Victorian Queensland alone in the 2010s, more than 720 babies were delivered alive from an attempted abortion and denied medical care. Now, that's that's a human rights disaster. This is a picture of Gianna Jessen up behind me. She was an abortion survivor from 1977. She's now an anti-abortion activist. She is the literal face of somebody who was attempted to be killed in the womb. So the Lord does now protect mothers, protecting mothers good, but it does not protect babies. Not good. I want to now speak well, briefly, for a moment of the pro-abortion side. I think, again, it's been pretty clear. My cards are on the table where I think the scripture is, and I stand with scripture. But I want to speak well of them because I want to be fair and gracious and loving. Because pro-abortion activists are seeking to do good as they see it. And I think there are, there are some issues today where people don't have genuine hearts to do good. I don't believe this is one of those. That abortion itself is really an open and shut moral evil. But the issues surrounding abortion are complex. And many of them are quite evil themselves. For example, the historic oppression of women's rights undergirds this whole conversation. Women have been concerned about their ability to keep or pursue a career if they fall unexpectedly pregnant. And if you wonder why, it's because they have struggled to keep or continue a career falling unexpectedly pregnant. That's why. That's why they're concerned. There have been concerns about the financial and social ramifications about being a single mother, about mental health issues. There are concerns about the physical health of women who if it's not legalized and, and therefore them might seek to get a backyard abortion instead there are concerns about removing stigmas on single mothers there have been concerns about women's lives being controlled by other people's choices and the helplessness that creates church if you're not hearing it these are real concerns they're worthy of consideration they are worthy of empathy now outside of this there are obviously less worthy concerns like People just getting pregnant during drug or alcohol and affected sex or having unprotected sex without thought. that happens too, of course. But that doesn't mean the other reasons aren't worthy of consideration, empathy and care. My personal high horse, of all the reasons that I want to come down on hard, is fatherlessness. Fatherlessness is an epidemic, and by that, I mean the crippling and toxic behavior of so-called men who remove themselves from responsibility. Frequently lying to women before they sleep with them, cheating their way out of child support. The behavior of scumbag men towards vulnerable women is one of the leading practical causes of abortion. Really. The lack of having someone to rely on. 70% of women in one study who had abortion said, if somebody had encouraged me and stood by me, I wouldn't have done it. 70%. I particularly want to point out those who stick around just long enough to coerce an abortion, but won't stick around for their partner afterwards dirtbags, the scum of the earth. There's no wonder that women feel out of options when something like this happens. Is it any wonder that God has commanded us to keep sex within the boundaries of marriage? Is there any wonder really when you think about things like this? But even within the covenant of marriage and out of it, we've seen issues of emotional, physical coercion and control around pregnancies, not to mention domestic violence. And at the darkest possible edges of the abortion conversation, rape and incest can be involved. That's horrific. There's no two ways about it. It is entirely reasonable to raise these issues. It is entirely reasonable to point out that some of these things are, are horrific and evil and must be stopped. It's entirely Reasonable to throw ourselves in front of these issues and demand justice, but I believe it is entirely unreasonable to assume that the best way to combat these problems is by ending the life of a child. So let's look at the obvious front end of these pro abortion arguments, and then we're going to move to the complex back end of these issues because they matter deeply. The first one worth looking at is the pro abortion argument that we need to have abortions to save the life of the mother. Now, this is an excellent argument on surface. But in reality, that's just the thing that happens in Australia. If there is the risk of the mother passing away, the mother gets urgent medical care and an abortion occurs. That's not that's not a choice, that's the um, urgent medical intervention. So, it's been illegal uh, for many many years in Australia not to do that. Right? That's been a legal requirement for doctors. That's about personal safety in extreme circumstances. So, while that, that's not really a helpful argument to have because it exists already. You, you're following me there? Like people, mothers are already safe on this side. It's not a good argument because uh, that's the only argument where we're talking about balancing lives one against the other. The, uh, instead of going, I'm, I'm just balancing one life here. So while that's obviously a very good reason to have an abortion, it, it is already in existence. It is already justified. So let's keep moving to the more complex reasons. The second one is psychosocial reasons. Psychosocial reasons is a broad covering uh, for the most common cause of abortions. Um, one of the reasons that's commonly listed is, is called just mental health. Now, mental health, we, we are conditioned in 2023 to instinctively lean in support, good instinct. But there's actually not another box to tick. It, it's not like they give you 35 boxes and you you choose a bunch of nuanced reasons why you're having an abortion, It's mental health or psychosocial reasons become the coverall for many, many things. So it's an inaccurate piece of data. There are not options to tick that say, this is an inconvenience to my life. Now, it's very, very difficult to find good data on this. Only two states in Australia, South Australia and Western Australia, keep rigorous data on abortions, which is interesting. But some American research shows that for around 75% of people, no reason was given for having an abortion. They just, no reason, they just didn't want one. Another 20% of people said it was for social or economic reasons. So 95% of women in this research, which seems to align with what we know of Australian research, have abortions of convenience. Now, there are real reasons underneath that, right? I'm not trying to dismiss the reasons. I'm trying to look at the end point and ask whether the reasons justify the end point. For those who have abortions of babies who are at 20 weeks gestation or further, a full half of them are for for mental health reasons. You may have thought it had to do with medical reasons or with abnormalities in the baby, but you would be wrong. 50% are just that cover all mental health reason. Some of the most frequent responses have included, I I can't afford a baby. Having a baby would dramatically change my life. Continuing the pregnancy would jeopardize my career, education, relationship, etc., I'm not ready for a baby or, or I finished childbearing. Two ends of the spectrum there. These are the reasons given. The highest percentages of people aborting their children are, are not teen mums. They're not surprised older women. They're people between the ages of 20 and 35. Prime parenting years. Now, statistics are only statistics. There are real people and real stories behind them. But we do have to understand what the statistics are made up of when we are getting Excited or upset on one side or the other of a conversation like this. It's so important because, as you would probably know, one of the biggest narratives in abortion is my body, my choice. I'm sure many of you would have heard that my body, my choice. I want to say this very, very carefully. For approximately 95% of women who have had abortions, they have made a choice. Consensual sex was the choice. There is another, another, now another human being in there who does not get a choice at all. Now, if you hear that and go, well, Mike, that's not fair. Men don't have to deal with that. It's like, I, you, you're so right. You're absolutely right. I, I can't do anything about that. And I, I am glad there is free will. And I'm actually glad for a measure of safety within the law. Personally, that's not biblical. That is personal. want to be clear because i believe people have to make this choice for themselves i'm just trying to help them help you choose what i believe the lord is saying in his scripture and when there's so much pain and so much wrongdoing i don't believe wrongdoing is cancelled out by more wrongdoing here's the thing i'm an adopted kid i was born to a 17 year old mum and a 19 year old dad who, by sheer love and courage, decided to see their baby through to full term, and gave him away sight unseen to my parents, in that which makes my parents sound a lot worse than they were. Like I'm sure if they'd seen them, they would have given them away, me away, regardless. <laughs> that was in the '80s, guys. Like that's when teen pregnancies were much more stigmatized. Now, statistically, given my mother's age when I was born, seventeen, I'm a 50% chance of being an abortion. I thank God and my dear mother that I'm here. She's so brave. I'm not here to diminish the struggles of women who choose abortions because they're real. And many of them would weigh so heavily on a person. I know what it's like to wrestle with mental health and I will never understand what it's like to have postnatal depression. I I can't. I I simply can't. But to end a human's life over it, what are we doing? What are we doing? We, we, We don't want to make that comparison. Friends, we don't. That's only 95% of people. And as we talked about recently, our God is a God who leaves the 99 to find the one. So every small percentage matters. The last 5% is the hardest. And this is, I said, I said the other week that we're not the kind of church that needs a trigger warning, but this next 5%, it's pretty rough. It is pretty rough. And this is a 5% linked to domestic violence, coercion, and worse. So I put it under the banner of sexual assault. Medical abnormalities and disabilities account for another 3.5% of, pregnancy, of abortions in Australia. So we're up to about 99%. But the, and the final 1%, less than 1%, statistically, is, is rape, incest, and teen pregnancies. Now, these are obviously not the same thing. None of them. They're in separate categories. Now, this is just data. Numbers are numbers, but these are real people, real stories. Some of them have experienced horrifying sexual assault, an imaginable trauma. I cannot imagine the horror. I, I can't. And I've sat and pastorally cared for people who have been through all sorts of trauma, some not dissimilar to what I'm talking about here. The evil that people can perpetuate on another person, I, I cannot imagine it. I've heard the argument that the child who came about because of rape or incest, they'd have a terrible life. Why would they want to live? I've heard the argument that they would hate themselves, that it would be a reflection of a misery that the mother went through, that they're hard points to argue with. But the point is, if you're here to argue them, you're here to argue them. And the child is not. The child never gets a say. We make an assumption that a damaged life is a lesser life. But the message of the Bible is that all life is valuable. And I would beg you to consider... Does it it lessen the evil of rape or incest to take the life of a child? Of course not. Will it undo any of the wrong? Will it perhaps make it even worse? I cannot make that decision for anyone else. But here's what the Word of God says. Don't repay evil with evil. Don't do it. If anyone hears this message and has gone through or is going through something like this, don't let it break you. Don't let it defeat you. Don't let somebody who has perpetrated violence on you win. Don't let them win. The Apostle Peter put it this way. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. That's what Jesus did. Imagine taking something evil and turning it into a work of good. Doesn't that sound exactly like Jesus? Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, friends, protecting the lives of children is one of the great meta-narratives of the Bible. The murders of Israelite babies by Pharaoh in Egypt was brought to justice by the great plagues of God, ending with the death of the firstborn son that freed the Israelites from slavery, which might make you ask the question, well, isn't God the murderer here? Now, of course, he's God and we're not, but you can ask the question. But note that this was the 10th plague, the 10th time God had asked Pharaoh to release the slaves, the 10th time that God had said, I need life for my children. And Pharaoh had said, no, they serve my convenience. The 10th time, and eventually God had said, this is going to happen. What you are doing to my children will happen to yours if you cannot give life. Now, I'm not trying to draw the metaphor. I'm just trying to say this is what happened with Pharaoh and Israel. In Matthew 18.10 and Matthew 19.14, these are not only clear moments of children being blessed by Jesus, but Jesus warning people not to harm children. He said, do not harm even a hair on the head of one of these little ones. And what happened to Jesus? Of course, he himself fled King Herod in Matthew chapter 2, who murdered small boys in and around Bethlehem in an effort to kill the infant King Jesus. Friends, the Bible, the biblical vision is not anti-abortion. It is pro-all of life. And one of the critiques offered to Christians is that we're pro-womb, not pro-life. Now, this has some validity. If we cannot support single parents, if we cannot consider adoption or consider fostering or support vulnerable pregnant women, then we have to hold responsibility. But statistics show that Christians do do those things and do them more than the average people. We are more likely to give to the poor. We're more likely to volunteer at women's shelters. We are more likely to adopt and foster children. The early Christians were infamous for this. Abortions were rare in the Roman Empire because they were too dangerous. So people simply had the babies and threw them in the dump. It was called infant exposure. The baby will just die of exposure. It's actually what is still happening today with babies that are born alive after an abortion attempt. Death by the elements. But Christians found them and cared for them and took them in as their own because they knew what it meant to be taken in by God the Father and called His children when we did not have a right to it. And so God, who had poured out His mercy on them, caused them to reflect that into a world that was desperately needing a vision of hope and mercy. Here's what I'm trying to say. While I believe this is too big an issue not to challenge pro-abortion lobbyists, the goal of the church is not to be the judgment seat of Christ. It is to be the hands and feet of Jesus and hearts. We need to use our voices to condemn abortion, yes, while simultaneously using our hands, compassionate hearts, and our finance to help mothers and babies doing it tough. This is the time, church. We, we don't get just to listen to a talk and go, I agree or I disagree. What God is doing through the gospel is transforming our hearts and internalizing a new way of being in us so that we will transform the world that's the whole monday invaders thing that's everything we are about it's not about agreeing with something for information it is about being transformed ourselves for whole of earth transformation that's the vision And people have always been captured by vision and heart and action, not by stern words and judgment from afar. Who's changed by that? Nobody feels good from judgment. This is the time, church. We need to stand up and be counted. We can't be anti-abortion and not support single mums. We can't be anti-abortion and iffy on domestic violence or not trust the words of victims in those situations. We have to ruthlessly weed out normalization or acceptance of sexual abuse in our speech, in our jokes, in our conduct, and in the lives of others. Men, I'm particularly talking to you here. You need to call out this behavior in other men. Step on it quickly. Don't allow it so that it doesn't become permissible by by omission in people's homes. Don't allow that. We've got to totally... Remove judgmentalism of others and give love the final word. Forget policies. Forget policies for a second, guys. What if we, the church, loved and supported women in such a way that it was never a thought to have an abortion because the love and support was there? Love in action, that's what changes people's hearts. Now, as I come towards a close... Let me talk about fear for the future. Because if you fall pregnant unexpectedly, particularly outside of a relationship, I can absolutely understand why you'd feel scared about having a baby. You may feel nervous to tell people feeling judged. You might be nervous about whether you have to raise your child alone, whether that means giving up a career, whether you can afford the child, whether a partner's going to be with you, whether your mental health can stand up to having a child. These feelings are valid. Don't let them win. Having a child is hard. It does change your life, but it doesn't ruin your life. It actually brings it a unique treasure. Children are a treasure. They're hard work, but they're a treasure. And if you are currently considering having an abortion, if you're online or in the room, I want to beg you to reconsider. I I just beg you, human life is at stake. What does the Bible remind us about fear? The love casts it out. And bearing a child, especially an unexpected or unwanted child, is an extraordinary countercultural act of love. Imagine if someone in this room fell pregnant outside of marriage and kept her baby through to full term. Imagine her adopting that child out and telling a story that she felt she couldn't raise the child herself, but also couldn't morally have an abortion as a Christian. What if her story was that she had a church family supporting her pregnancy so thoroughly? And that she found a family who so desperately wanted a child and got a baby. And so a story of brokenness becomes a story of redemption. Sin turns into grace. Death turns into life. And if that is ever you, please come talk to me and Jen. You don't have to do this alone. You're not in this alone. That's the gospel from dead to alive. How good is that? That's God's hope for your future and for unborn children. But what about the past? Because I came down pretty hard on some men earlier in this sermon. And there may be people in this room, in fact, statistically, there definitely will be, who have had an abortion before, who have been involved in coercing or financing a partner to have an abortion. It may be that as you've heard these words or even just approach this as a topic, shame is rearing its head. I wanna draw you back to Psalm 139 here. Verse seven, where can I go to escape your spirit, Lord? Where can I flee from your presence? If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark for you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. God formed you and has found you. And if you feel trapped in shame because of your past, God has grace for you. That's exactly why Jesus came, to free you. Friends, if you let your past define you, you will be trapped. That goes for any situation. You need the grace of God to set you free from the sins of your past. In 1 Corinthians 6, the same chapter where Paul reminds us that our bodies actually belong to God and not to us, we hear him talk about how the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, those in deliberate rebellion against God and his ways will not enter heaven. That's heavy. This is what Paul reminds his listeners. He said, some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The grace of God has transformed you and washed you clean. The blood of the Lamb has been shed for your sins. You are not your past. You are not even defined by what you've been wrestling with or believing in the present. God is a God calling you into a new future. You are alive in Christ. I want to beg you, don't let your past define you. You can actually have been involved with an abortion in the past and make a stand against abortion now. And in the kingdom of God, that's not called hypocrisy. That's called being a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's called going from dead to alive. You're a saved sinner. There is so much grace for you. Friends, as I, as I come to a close, and what I know has been a heavy message, let me be super clear. I believe abortion is the greatest social evil of our day. Almost 1.3 million Australian babies killed in 20 years. It's it's unacceptable. I've I sometimes talk about this with uh, with Jen about like the stuff, you know, the phrase "I'll die on this hill," you know. And there's there's some things that I get agitated about and just sort of reach for the extremely imaginary gun, probably an iPhone, really. <laughs> like, oh, I'm mad about this. And you realize you don't need to get that mad. Put it down. There's another thing. Oh, I'm really mad. No, just calm down. You do not need to comment. For me, this is, this is the topic. I'll, I'll die on this hill. I, I, I couldn't live with myself not preaching on this and not sharing on this. My desperate prayer is that our culture will actually embrace progress. Progress which recognizes the life of the child. Understanding that abortion is not an acceptable solution in a civilized nation. So, how do we respond to this? Well, I was really struck last week by a line that Tim used as he was quoting Dr. Henry Cloud Love preserves choice. The judgmental sinner inside of me would kind of prefer not to do that because it seems easier. Not to give choice and to say, do this and get angry, which I probably did anyway. (laughs) But that's what God does with us. His love for us has preserved choice for us. He gives us free will. We can do anything we want. And then he says, let me show you the way to Jesus, the way of life. Turn your back on sin. That's called repentance and run towards Jesus, fixing your eyes on him. He's the author of your faith. He started it all. He's the perfecter of your faith. He's made you right again. No matter what you have been through, no matter what you have believed, no matter what you have journeyed through, no matter your shame, your brokenness, your opinions in Christ, you can bring them to him and all will be made new. You're a new creation. Friends, I, I hope so deeply that nobody walks away today feeling condemned or shamed. You are not. There is grace for you. I'm just here to beg of you to choose life over death, that you preserve the life of the innocent. God calls you his children. He breathes life into you and he has grace for you. He's formed you. He searches you out. He writes you into the book of life. No matter what ideology you've been holding on to, no matter what sin is in your past, no matter what fear is in your future, the Holy Spirit is here now to fill you and set you free. So I want to invite us as we head back into a moment of worship to stand and receive some prayer. And this prayer is for people that just want to say, I need to be made new in Christ tonight. No reasoning No explanation. You saying, putting your hand up and saying, I need prayer, is not putting your hand up and saying, I've been involved in an abortion in my past. It is saying, I feel the need to ask Christ to make me a new creation. To, like Martin Luther says, crawl back under my baptism tonight. I need that freshness in Christ. Thank you, brother. Why don't we stand together?